everlasting. Amen. Turn in your Bibles today to John chapter 12. We'll be wrapping up John 12 today. We'll be in verses 37 through 50. And um, hopefully you can feel as we come near the end of John chapter 12, we and enter into John 13, you can feel the transition that I've talked about, the transition from Jesus' public ministry into his last, uh, at least night, if not several nights of his ministry on earth before his crucifixion. John 13 will pick up more than likely at the evening of the Last Supper. John gives us so much detail on that evening. Uh, and uh, we will see his uh, last words prior to his crucifixion to to his disciples and also the prayer that he prays for his disciples and also for all that will follow the disciples. But today we looked at, we will look at a summary that John gives us of Jesus' ministry. And so we pick up today's reading in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. Actually, we're going to pick up in the last half of 36, excuse me. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. He, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not com come out of the synagogue. Oh, bleh. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. And then Jesus cried out, when a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the world, but I, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him, condemn him at the last day. This could be a fun sermon, by the way, guys. <laughs> For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his commandment leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just and what the Father has told me to say. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, you are Lord above all. I am a fallen, broken human being who stumbles over my words. Remove me from this equation and speak to your people through the words that, that you have for them today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mr. Walter Coleman was probably my favorite professor in college and undergrad. When I went to Florida Southern to get my degree in business and economics, I had Mr. Coleman for several uh, several uh, classes. I always tried to call him Dr. Coleman because I was, got used to having most of my professors in undergrad and especially once I got up to seminary were doctors, but Mr. Coleman was humble enough to remind us all that he was not a doctor, he was simply Mr. He had earned his right to teach in the world, being out there doing what he was teaching us to do. Uh, 
Mr. Coleman and I actually, as I graduated from college and uh, grew and matured, he and I actually became friends. And in fact, he, uh, he wrote for me a recommendation letter when I went to seminary um, and was actually quite proud to write that letter for me as a, as a good, devout Christian man. He was always happy to see students of his succeed and go into the ministry. And unfortunately, he, he died of cancer before I graduated and didn't have an opportunity to see me graduate. Not only was he humble, he was my favorite because he was a difficult professor. Mr. Coleman was definitely not easy. You had to participate in class, and even though he wouldn't call upon you by name, or even though he would act as though he didn't know who was speaking to them at times, he knew exactly who was in his class, he knew exactly who was participating, and exactly who was not. His tests were probably some of the hardest tests I have ever taken in my college career. He got some complaints about his test that there was not enough multiple choice and true false type questions. There was only eight to 10 essay questions for every test that he gave. So in order to answer his critics, he added 75 to 100 multiple choice questions to the eight to 10 essay questions, which he did not remove from the test. Those hundred, just so you know, Mr. Coleman, those hundred 75 to 100 multiple choice questions counted for about 10% of your grade. The most important thing to him were the essays. And what are essay questions on a college exam? They are opportunities to, for you to take all the information that you have learned either up to the midterm or up to the final and to summarize that information and to apply it to what would be potentially real world situations. In a sense, this last portion, the section of John chapter 12, is the essay question. Is John's answer to summarize for us the public ministry of Jesus Christ and to summarize for us the reaction of the public to that ministry. And John summarizes for us two different things, the teaching of Jesus up to this point and also the reaction of the people to that teaching. And so today we're going to take those two things out of order, out of the order that John has given them to us here. And we're going to look first at John's summary of Jesus' teaching, which begins in verse 44. And then after that, we will look at the summary of the reaction to that teaching. First, summarizing his teaching we have this section here, verse 44, that begins with, then Jesus cried out. Now, we honestly don't know when that then was. This is probably statements that Jesus made throughout his teaching that John compiles for us here in this section. Remember, John is building up to the glorification of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that glorification came through a period for John of public teaching and a period for John of private teaching. And he is leading us up to that point. And as Jesus transitions into the private portion of his ministry, John is kind of reminding us of where we've come so far. So what is some of the teaching that John summarizes for us? He talks first about when a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. We have seen throughout Jesus' teaching that there's this interplay between I do what the Father has told me. 
I and the Father are one. This doesn't only show up in John's gospel, but in the other gospels as well. He's going to reflect this later on in his teaching, even when he's talking to his disciples in John 14, there alone. You believe in me, you believe also in God. If you have seen me, you will be with the Father in heaven. In that very familiar passage of John 14, verses 1 through 6. So he talks about he and the Father are one. Whoever believes in him believes also in the Father. He reflects teaching from us that we've heard in John chapter 3. I have come into the world, or actually, excuse me, first off in John chapter 1. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. We even saw this teaching in last week's passage. That Jesus came to bring light into the world and you either embrace the light or you remain in darkness. And then following on that, he talks about judgment as for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. Remember back to John 3, 17, following those words that are so familiar to us from John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe on him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus goes on to say, I did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save it. And I don't know if you remember, but when we looked at that, Jesus did not come into the world to judge the world because it was already condemned. Those who live in sin are condemned already. And so Jesus didn't come to bring judgment. The world is already judged. And Jesus actually goes on to to flesh this out a little bit more. Jesus says, I don't have to judge these people. I come to the world, I save it. But the one who rejects me and does not accept my words, that very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. If you have heard the gospel preached and you ignore it, you reject it, there is great judgment for you. Even if you have not heard it preached vocally, we were talking about in Sunday school today that every human being has the law of God written upon their heart and every human being has been born with a conscience. Some of them seared, some of them calloused, some of us given over to the rejection of that conscience. But when we reject that feeling of right and wrong that's in our hearts, we are rejecting the law of God and we are rejecting Jesus. And and that law will condemn us. The gospel preached and rejected will condemn us. We don't need a judge. We condemn ourselves by the rejection of the gospel. He goes on to summarize Jesus. John goes on summarizing Jesus' uh, teaching by saying, I did not, kind of coming back to where he began in this little section, for I do not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his commands lead to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. We see Jesus here speaking what the Father has given him, speaking to whom the Father has called him to speak, and reminding us that following the teachings of Jesus, following the commands of Jesus leads to eternal life. And so we have in this last little section of 44 through 50, a summary of what Jesus has taught, a summary that we were given once, beginning in John chapter 1, and a summary that we are given again of the teaching of Jesus. But John does not 
only summarize for us the teaching of Jesus, he also summarizes the reaction to that teaching, the public reaction to Jesus' teaching. And it is really boils down to one word. It's rejection. People have rejected teaching. Jesus, John says in the beginning of verse 37, he says, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence. What miracles has Jesus done so far just in the Gospel of John? He's turned water into wine. He has healed a blind man. He has healed a lame man. He has raised Lazarus from the dead. And what did John say in John chapter 11 was the religious leader's reaction to the raising of the dead of Lazarus. He basically says it was at this point that they decided to actively pursue his death. We talk to people daily, weekly, monthly, who say, you know, if I could just see a miracle like they had in there, maybe I would believe. The reaction of the people that saw it face to face was they saw it and rejected. They saw it and sought to kill. If our heart is dead, and it is, we are born with an inclination to reject God and His gospel. Each and every one of us, if we are presented with the evidence on our own, we would reject it. John says later on in his gospel, Jesus did so many signs. Jesus taught so many things that there is not enough paper in this world to write it all down on. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. He says in 2031, these things are written down so that you might believe. But the natural inclination of our heart is to not believe. And it takes that regeneration of John 3, 3. You must be born again for our hearts to be changed so that we might accept, so that we might believe, so that we might come to a saving knowledge of who our Savior is. But why don't they believe? And this is a hard teaching here when we get the answer to why they don't believe. John goes back to Isaiah. Uh, oftentimes, if you want to understand the writings of John, and I'm not trying to put any extra onus on your study or anything like that, but oftentimes, if you want to understand the writing of John, Isaiah helps greatly, even for Revelation. A lot of the imagery of Revelation comes from Isaiah. Now, can you understand John without Isaiah? Absolutely. But it will help fulfill your understanding of John if you understand Isaiah. And John helps us out with that right here. Why don't they believe him? They don't believe him because they're fulfilling the words of the prophet. The first word comes from Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the second word he uses comes from Isaiah chapter 6, which we read earlier in our service. He has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal him. The context of this passage from Isaiah 6, Isaiah has been taken up into the heavenly throne room where he sees one who is, as the NIV says, exalted, as other translations say, one who is lifted up. And that language is important there. One who is lifted up and he has fallen upon his feet, realizing that he is a sinner in the presence of the holy and glorious and majestic God. 
and says, I deserve to die. And yet he is given atonement through the, the coal from the altar of judgment being placed upon his lips to burn away that sin from his life. And he is given a mission and he is given a mission to go proclaim the good news of repentance to the people of Israel who God says will reject everything he says. Can you imagine that? Imagine a young man being given a mission to proclaim a message to God. And God says, you're going to preach for several years and nobody's going to listen to a word you say. They're going to reject you. They're going to turn you away. I am going to give you my words and I am going to give you proof that these are my words and they're going to reject you. Is it a surprise, John says here? If the prophet Isaiah was rejected, how much more the Son of God? Think about the parable of the man who buys a vineyard and he hires some servants to work in it. And he sends another servant to collect the money and the wines, the wine, yeah, yeah, the wine, that's the right word, the money and the wine from that vineyard. And they beat up and eject the servant. So he sends another servant and they beat him even worse and send him out and he says, I'm going to send my son. They'll listen to my son. And they kill the son. How much... John says if they rejected the prophet, the servant of God, they're going to reject his son as well. They've turned their hearts toward themselves and not toward God. But, but John takes it one step further. In pushing these two sections together from Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6, and then adding in verse 41 that says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Whose glory did he see? Isaiah tells us that he sees God's glory upon the throne. John says, no, he saw Jesus' glory. And we're reminded once again, this is another summary of teaching almost that's kind of out of place in this section. John has made the point, that is the point of John's gospel is Jesus is divine. And when we see God's glory, we see Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we see God. And remember, he saw that glory high and lifted up, right? What is the context of Isaiah 53.1? It's the context of the suffering serpent who is beaten to the point that we can't stand to look at him anymore. It is the context of the suffering servant that is raised upon a cross by whose stripes you and I are healed. The one who took the punishment for our iniquity upon himself so that we might have life. And John says once more, the glorification, the lifting up, the exaltation of the Savior comes through his lifting up, comes through the cross. And not only will they reject the miracles, they will reject the greatest message of all, which is that forgiveness comes through the exaltation of the cross, through the combined shame and glory of the cross. Why do they reject? Because their hearts have been hardened. Why are their hearts hardened? Because they reject. Why do they reject? Because it fulfills the prophecy that their hearts will be hardened. Why are their hearts hardened? Because they reject. It's this vicious cycle. We see it play out in Exodus as well, where we are told that Pharaoh rejected the message of God brought to him by Moses, and so God hardened his heart. And so Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So God hardened his heart. So Pharaoh hardened his own heart. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce tells a, a fable, a parable, if you will, about a group of people who have chosen to reject God. 
At first, that choice doesn't look that condemning. But as God continues to let them reject him, as they continue to reject him, as they continue to be allowed to reject him, they get further and further and farther and farther away from God until a point at which God says, fine, you want to reject me, you want to live life without me, so be it. Some of the harshest words we could ever hear. But if we want to reject God and if we want to reject him long enough, he will actually let us. And he will let us live eternity separated from him because that's exactly what we want. And it is done to fulfill the prophecy that many of those who hear will reject. Now, John goes on to say that not everybody rejected. Some of them believed on him. But that's a summary of things we've heard from John as well. John chapter 2, he turns the water into wine. He preaches about the temple and many of them believe on him. But Jesus knew that most of them would turn from him and did not really believe in him. We have that summarized for us here. They believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Now, many of the Jews did believe on him and many of them believed or a handful of them believed truly. We have Nicodemus came to Jesus and we find out later on that he defends Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. We have Joseph of Arimathea, who, along with Nicodemus, took this very public stand to take Jesus' body and to treat it not as a common criminal, but as something special after he had died, but giving him a proper burial. But most of the people that claimed belief in him just believed that, yeah, you know what, he's a good teacher. He's telling us to love people. He's telling us to forgive people. He's giving me these warm fuzzies in my belly. But I don't believe him enough to actually take a stand. I don't believe it enough to actually claim that he is a Messiah and Savior. We, we have that in our culture today. We have for years, probably for the last century, a majority of Americans have claimed to be Christian. And within the last 20 years or so, that number is shifting to people, the majority of people in America having no religious affiliation with all, with anything at all. I actually don't think the real numbers have changed. I think it's the idea of cultural expediency. For much of the 20th century, as the Industrial Revolution came through, it was a good thing to be in church. It was good for your business. It was good for your social standing. It was good for what you looked like in the society around you. Oh, he goes to such and such a church. We can trust him. Oh, she goes to such and such a church. I hear people from there are really good people. That's shifting in our culture. Church is no longer important. It's more culturally expedient today to not have any religious affiliation, to be religiously affiliated to the golf course or to be religiously affiliated to the, to the football stadium or to be religiously affiliated to the news channel than it is to be affiliated to a church. And so we see the true Christians staying in the church, the ones who are truly willing to stand and glorify God and those who have just been here for cultural expediency to leave. It's no different today than it was 2,000 years ago. They claim to believe but are not willing to stand because they like the praise of man more than the praise of God. As Jesus transitions his ministry here in the Gospel of John for us, 
we know where this is leading. This is leading to his lifting up. This is leading to his glorification on the cross. But John reminds us this one last time of what has happened so far in the three years of Jesus' ministry and what he has taught and what has been rejected and who has been rejected. We live in very much the same world. We, we, could, we could have personal video footage of the miracles of Jesus and we could show it to people and you know what most of them would do? They'd go, I don't believe that. I reject it. I don't need a savior. Yeah, okay, so he did some really cool stuff. That guy came up out of the grave that had been dead for four days, but you know what? I don't need that junk. As we go out, as we talk about Jesus, as we live our lives for Jesus, most people understand are going to reject him. That's just their natural bent. That's just their natural inclination. Some of the people we talk to will accept the message and they'll sit here in church for a time. But when the going gets tough, they'll go. They'll leave. And as we move forward in this world, as people leave the church and are no longer as educated in the language of the church, our ministry to them will be tougher. But one, one teaching here that, that John doesn't touch on but is very important is that once we are his sheep, we can never be taken from him. No matter how the world changes around us, no matter how culturally expedient it is to be in church or to not be in church, those who are his sheep, his sheep are his forever. And no matter how much the world rejects us, we are his. And he will never reject us. And we are eternally secure because what, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say, and I know that his command leads to eternal life. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, give us the encouragement of eternal life as we stand here and as we stand for you. Change the hearts of the culture around us to accept your gospel and bring us to those who desperately need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.